Hey, my name is Will Shelton. I'm one of the pastors at Powell Church in Knoxville. It's good to be with you today on this Read Together podcast. I actually moved to this church in June, and at my previous church in Virginia, we were walking through this plan together on Sundays, and it was a great joy to be able to be part of that. It's great to be able to be with you here today. This week in the readings in the book of Ezra is a passage that we have all in church world, kind of lived a little bit in the last couple of years because in Ezra 6, the people go back to the building. And at some point, I hope, in the last two years, two and a half, whatever it's been, at some point you had a time when you were away from the building and then you had a time when you came back to the building. In Ezra's case, it hasn't been 50 or 60 weeks or whatever it was for you. It's been more like 50 or 60 or 70 years. There's an entire generation that was in exile after the temple was torn down. And they're not an entirely free people. Maybe maybe you haven't felt entirely free in the last couple of years either, but they need permission to return, but it's granted from Babylon through King Cyrus and then King Darius. It tells us this in Ezra 6 and verse 3. In the first year of his reign, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices are offered and burnt offerings are brought. The height will be 60 cubits and the width 60 cubits and three courses of hewn stones and one course of timber. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Moreover, let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, let them be restored brought back to the temple in Jerusalem, each to its place. He will put them in the house of God. Then it goes on to say this, Moreover, in verse 8, I make a decree regarding what you will do for the elders of the Jews rebuilding this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these people in full, without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river. Whatever's needed, young bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings for the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests in Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, so that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. Pray for the life of the king and his children. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of the house of the perpetrator who will then be impaled on it. So essentially they say, if anyone tries to keep you from rebuilding the temple, execute them on it. It's creative and effective, apparently, because the temple is indeed rebuilt. And we're told, of course, in verse 16, that the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. When the people come back to the building, there is joy. And then one of the first things they do in their return is celebrate the Passover. We see the Passover instructions in the Deuteronomy readings this week as well. That story, that Passover narrative is central to who they are as people, so much so that it's essentially the first recorded thing that happens when they return to the building. Now, scholars disagree. I'm sure the people did too. I'm sure you might too. People disagree over what did they really believe about this second temple? Was it the same? Was the full presence of God really there? Did people believe that it was? What we do know for sure, though, is that when Jesus arrives on the scene some 500 years later, he doesn't exactly go through the temple. I mean, in fact, right, the veil is torn in two when he dies. The idea 
of the temple plays this critical role among his followers, but Jesus doesn't really use the temple as the means of grace. And in fact, the story of what we do see Christ do there actually involves the absence of something to demonstrate true presence. Because as we know, Jesus and his followers will share the Passover meal as well. And one thing you may have known about those Passover stories in the Gospels, those communion stories, is that we celebrate and still share in our own lives, in our own churches, the bread and the wine. But the lamb is not mentioned. This is the time of year when we think about these big meals, right? These big, holy, festive kinds of meals. We're all getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families and give thanks for the ways we can do that. Maybe that we couldn't one or two years ago. But if your household is like mine or like most, right? We don't have Thanksgiving without the turkey. The turkey is essential to what Thanksgiving is about. It is probably weird if you have Thanksgiving without turkey. And it would definitely be weird if you had Passover without the lamb. But in the story we get of the communion narrative in the Gospels, there's never any mention of the lamb. The lamb isn't in the Passover text Jesus shares with his followers because I think the story wants you to know that Jesus is the lamb. Not this tangible presence that's there, but something more mysterious, similar to really what we're going to get in the Holy Spirit. And it's this great reminder, I think, of what Jesus' followers are still called to believe about the way God works, that this full presence of God can't be contained by our tents and our tabernacles and our temples, as good as they may be, as grand as they may be, as joyful as they may be. What we've learned over these last few years is that our God is much bigger, much bigger, than tents and tabernacles and even temples. It's a truth that held us together even when we couldn't be physically together. And a truth, I think, that can continue to call us forward. Maybe think about it this way. There, there was a great uh, Super Bowl commercial a few years back that I still think about all the time, right? It's the mark of any great advertisement is how long do you still think about it? this rare moment that when I first saw this commercial, I thought, man, that is really brilliant. And I still think it's brilliant three, four years later. In 2018, Tide ran an ad for their detergent. Starred David Hopper, uh, David Hopper, David Harbour, who plays Hopper on Stranger Things, if you're a fan of that show. And the premise of the ad was really simple. Because the clothes are always perfectly clean in every ad you see, Isn't every ad really a Tide ad, right? They went through, if you remember, and set up all these kind of classic commercial stereotypes. They put David Harbour in some of these classic Super Bowl ads of the past to suggest that every ad you see, no matter what it's advertising for, no matter what product it's advertising for, because those clothes are so pristine, isn't every ad really a Tide ad? I love this ad even when I don't want to, because in our household, I don't know about yours, maybe if you're listening in Alabama, But in Knoxville, I try to avoid buying products that share a name with Alabama's football team, and it's still a captivating idea to me. And when it comes to our God who can't be contained in tents and tabernacles and temples, it's not that different than what we're called to. Because this God who cannot be contained, this God through resurrection and the Holy Spirit that now lives in us, 
This God is everywhere we go, everywhere. In Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and everywhere we go. And this God is with us. And so our lives then are not entirely different than those ads suggesting that everywhere we go and everything we do, isn't it really a chance to encounter the presence of God, no matter what that thing may be? No matter what the idea may be or what ideas we may have held that our God is mostly found in buildings. Maybe in the absence of that over these last few years, when we've all had the chance to reflect and ask ourselves these big picture questions about what it is we do as churches, that even in our joy to come back to our buildings, that we might find the call and the truth that we experienced while we were away from them is still true. That Jesus is not just found in buildings. Jesus is found in our very lives, wherever they may take us. That Christ is present with us everywhere we go and gives us a chance to experience their presence in everything we do.